This is a continuation of what we were studying last week and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that. Uh, we are a Bible-believing church, therefore we like to allow the Word of God to speak for itself. And every once in a while, as the Word of God is speaking for itself and the Holy Spirit is speaking to each and every one of us, sometimes the Word of God will intersect with things that are happening in the world today. And the subject matter that Paul is talking about is he's talking about the acts of grace specifically for the relief of the saints. So as he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, he is wanting to spur them along and encourage them to participate and continue to do acts of grace for the relief of the saints. <clears throat> as we look through verses 1 through 9 in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, uh, the, these verses define these acts of grace to include the reallocating of resources to other churches facing times of great need. And the work of the apostles was broader than focusing simply on local ministry work or local churches, but rather their mission was to plant churches and then to support churches as they traveled and as they wrote letters and corresponded with the other churches. They would visit, they would send help, they would send support, they would inform other churches of the greater needs of the church at large or specific areas where perhaps there was famine or other kind of calamities that have happened to regional areas where they might need more support. And so Paul was, uh, as, the, as an apostle, Paul was working with all the churches to ensure that every ministry had exactly what they needed to carry out the work of the Lord and carry out the great commission of Christ. Because ultimately, that, was, that is what our main mission is, is to carry out the great commission of Christ. And so therefore, all the acts of, of the church and of ministry should be to that end, that we are baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are teaching them all that Christ had taught and that as the church in each local region, we are going out and making the world a better place by our interactions with our neighbors and those we live with. But part of that work <clears throat> includes helping supporting churches so that they can get out and do the work of ministry. And so therefore, if one church was struggling, in their mind, all the churches were struggling. It became a, a global church problem if one church was struggling. And so Paul, he writes to the church at Corinth about their contribution to help distant believers in need. And so that's the context that we're in. And I wanted to review, and just for those of you who might not have been here last week, or if you're like me and you forget almost the instant you walk out the door, what were the details? I don't remember. And unless you write them down, you're probably not going to remember all of them. And even if you do write them down, there's maybe only one or two bullet points that are really going to stick out to you. So I think it's important for us, in order to understand the context, to review briefly. So I want to review briefly, what are the acts of grace? Well, first of all, Paul talks about the fact that grace ultimately comes from God, that whenever there is unmerited favor that is demonstrated on anybody, that this is ultimately spurred on and inspired by God himself. So grace ultimately trickles down from God and through believers and through the church into the world. 
And so wherever there's grace, God deserves ultimately the credit. If you have felt grace from someone else, somebody helped you out in time of need, even though you absolutely did not deserve their help, that grace that you experience, God deserves the glory for it. And yes, you should also give thanks to the one who brought that grace, but ultimately God is the one who put the grace in their heart to bring grace to you. And so this is the point that Paul wants to make. And as we look at the types of grace, the context seems to refer to monetary graces that were given to support churches and believers who were experiencing uncommon needs for relief. Like I mentioned, like famine, it seems at the time Paul was referring to times of famine. But more simply than just writing a check or giving money, Paul wanted to emphasize the importance of having an appropriate heart as you are serving and as you are doing acts of grace. What you're going to find in the Christian life is that the Christian life is less about what you're doing and more about the reason why you're doing it, the heart behind it. Because God is not calling on Christians to simply be philanthropists. He's calling on Christians to have a deep desire for the needs of other people so that they can be introduced to the grace of God so that they can desire to worship God who will ultimately meet their deeper need. Because the deepest need of all mankind is the salvation of our souls. If you help somebody who is in poverty or in need and, and, you, and you lift them up out of poverty or need, but yet they still are, are dead in their sin, and their ultimate need is not being met, and chances are that they will end up right back where they began. So without Christ, our philanthropy work, our giving, our charity, our acts of grace are ultimately meaningless and very temporary, very temporary. So Paul talks about what are these acts of grace, what, what is the heart behind giving, and he talked about the fact that even the abundant joy that a believer brings when we are supporting the needs of people, the abundant joy is in and of itself an act of grace. He talked about sincerity, how it must come from the heart, a true desire to help, not simply so that you can write that off or check that box, but rather because you genuinely see a need and you gen genuinely want to help. Also, generosity is not ultimately in volume, but ultimately in meaning. And we looked at the generous widow who gave very little, but she gave all of what she had. And Christ used her with his disciples as an example of someone who gave more than anybody. Why? Because it's not about volume. It's not even really about the money itself, but it's about the heart behind that giving. Also, a, a desperate desire to help. In other words, you don't need permission to help. If you see a need, you're like, I'm going to help whether they want it or not because they need it. You don't take no for an answer. You don't simply say, well, I, I could help you. No, no, I don't need your help. It, it, it's, it's a, I'm going to come over and help you. When can I come over? It's, it's that kind of aggressive type of help where I really want to help you. A desperation. And this was the churches at Macedonia. This was their desperation. They didn't have much. They themselves were dealing with, with a lot of issues. But out of their little, they gave much. 
and they were desperate to give. They said, we don't have much to give, but we really want to help contribute to the needs of this area who is dealing with famine. Also demonstrations of faith, living by faith. Not trusting human wisdom, but trusting God's wisdom, even if it doesn't make any human sense. Also, with speech and knowledge are acts of grace. When you speak the truth of Christ, that, of course, the truth is freedom. Truth is a grace in and of itself. Many of you have experienced that as we've been dealing with lots of different misinformation and falsehood and false teaching. It's so nice and such an experience of grace when you hear truth and truth is spoken. And so even coming with the truth of the gospel is an act of grace. An earnestness and a love, all these things are what acts of grace are. And so as we are giving monetarily to help support the very monetary needs of people, the, temp the temporal needs of people, all of these things should encompass our giving. Otherwise, we're not giving as Christ has given us. So Paul wants to ensure the Corinthian church had their heart in the right place, which is why he spoke about all those things that we covered last week. Paul referred to the churches of Macedonia, which were Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. There are examples of churches with the right attitude and the right heart. They were in the right place to give because their heart was in the right place. They probably didn't give as much as some of the other churches, but he commended them for having a right heart. He also referred to an individual, to Titus, one who he had sent out and dispatched often to take care of needs of the church. He dispatched Titus to Crete because they had an elder problem. They, they, they were not electing elders, and the church was kind of in chaos and and anarchy, there, there was no order or structure. It was just kind of all falling apart. There was no leadership. There was no oversight. There was no teaching. And so Titus was dispatched to help them to go to not only to teach, but also to appoint elders while he is there until the job was done. In fact, uh, as you open up the book of Titus and you, you read the beginning of it, Paul says, I left you there because you did not finish the task I gave you. You need to elect and appoint elders at Crete. And once that is done, then I'm going to send you somewhere else. So he uses Titus ultimately because Titus ultimately carried out his task as an example of one who went with a true heart of grace to help where there was need. And finally, he pulled out the big guns and he used Jesus Christ himself as the perfect model of humility, grace, charity, and the way that we as believers ought to emulate everything in our faith. The way that Christ humbled himself. He, he emptied himself. He, he made himself low. As a humble servant, he gave so much. Not, not out of obligation, not out of duty but out of love, because he loves us. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that is the greatest demonstration of grace in the history of mankind, that a perfectly holy and righteous God would send his one and only son 
to lower himself, to serve, to die on a cross for our sins. None of us deserve his grace, but he has made it so simple and so easy to receive it. We simply have to open up our hearts to receive his gospel call, and we have to respond to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and we are saved. It is by God's grace that we are saved. And so as we continue here this week and we look at this section, uh, he's going to continue this conversation. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll dig into the scripture. Father, how good it is to know you and to be known by you. We lift you up as our King of kings and our Lord of lords. God, you are supreme over all the earth, over all creation, over our lives, over every nation. God, you raise up and you dispatch kings. You move mountains. You give us help in our time of need. Father, you've been so gracious to us, far more than we deserve. And your grace abounds. As I've gotten to know you, Lord, I've witnessed grace upon grace. Help us, Lord, this morning, as we are inspired by your word, to have a true and genuine deep desire to serve and to love as you have served and loved. Give us a right heart in our giving. Father, help us to have the right attitude in acts of grace and a true desire to see your gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Show us, Lord, where we need to give, not only of our finances, but of our time, of our efforts. Show us where the places you want us to go. We love you, God. We trust you. Guide us now by your word and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul continues in verse 10, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. <clears throat> so here Paul begins by saying he gives his judgment. Now the Apostle Paul was one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the Corinthian church. He was one of the church planters, plus he was constantly active in their growth and in their ministry. He would often dispatch his workers there to help supply their need whenever they were in need. And so therefore, he had the authority to share his judgments on the situations that were happening there and upon situations with specifically with people. If you've read the, uh, the first, first Corinthians, which we went through as a church, you notice he took great liberty to point people out by name, to point situa situations out by name, and to give his, not only God's authority, 
but also in certain circumstances, his own pastoral or apostolic wisdom and insight and counsel. And so he's doing the same here. He's using his authority to share with them what is good and what is right and what is true. And I want you to notice here, his language is that he is not legalistically commanding their charity. So he is not demanding this of them. He's not saying that, thus saith the Lord, you must give X amount of dollars to help the needs of the saints. In fact, if we, uh, he specifically says in 8.8, I say this not as a command. So the extra charity which he is referring to and he's encouraging them to give is good and helpful, but ultimately it's meaningless if they don't have the right heart about it. So his encouragement is more about you need to check your hearts. Where are your hearts at? Do you have the right heart to give according to this need? This was his focus. Then he talks about reasons to give. And beyond just simply giving to the specific need, these acts of grace also benefit the giver as well. So what he's saying is when you give, it's actually reciprocal. You, you get something back. And though the Bible talks about how our heart of giving should never be so that we get something back, it's a matter of fact that when you give, you do get something back. That's just the way God operates. Is that as you give, you, you may not receive the same thing back, but you receive the things which you need back in one way or another. And perhaps you're feeling downcast. Perhaps you're feeling sorry for yourself. Well, you know, when you step out in faith and you go to find somebody who is in need and to to give them help in their time of need, there's something about that that just brings you great joy, great confidence, great perspective, and appreciation. And while, while you may be giving monetarily, to somebody's need, their financial need, whatever it might be, you yourself are receiving spiritual riches as you serve and as you do the Lord's work. And so that's the beauty of giving is that it is reciprocal. You do receive in return. And also, by the way, when when it comes to the work of the churches, the way it should operate is that if everybody is helping out anybody in need, then the time when you're in need, you should also receive help also. And so it should be kind of a a perfect working system where we're all looking out for one another. But he also points out the fact that something changed along the way because Paul urges them to finish doing it well, which suggests that they were losing their desire to help because he points this out. He points out their desire, that they are losing their desire to help. Ephesians 6, 9 through 10 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. A couple things going on in that Ephesians passage. Number one, The reason for the instruction, let us not grow weary, is the fact that we do grow weary of doing good. And if you ever commit yourself 
for a, a long period of time to the work of service, to the work of philanthropy, anything like that, and you're just helping people all the time, eventually you get worn down. Eventually you get tired of it. Eventually you just start running out of that energy that you need to do those good acts. But the Bible, the Lord, the Holy Spirit spurs us on to not grow weary. If you feel yourself growing weary, if you hit a wall in your, in your giving and your, in your grace, he is telling you like an athlete, like a runner, you need to be aware of this. Or you need to push through it. You need to push through it. Many of you know that uh, I'm trying to be a runner. <laughs> and I say trying because that's what it is. I'm doing my very best. But one thing I've found in when you're doing any kind of long-distance running is that you will hit that wall, and you need to expect you're going to hit that wall. And you need to be mentally prepared, emotionally prepared for when that wall hits, and you need to be determined beyond that wall to push through it. And this, this happens even before you start running. Before you're running, you need to be determined, I am running five miles today, no matter what, expecting that by mile three, your brain is going to start saying, you know, your body kind of hurts a little bit. Your breathing is kind of heavy and hard. Maybe you should stop. And then your body is going to start saying, yeah, that sounds really good. You should probably stop. And that everything within you wants to stop. But then suddenly you remember your determination. I am determined to run five miles. I am not going to stop. I just need to focus. I need to push through it, to not give up. I need to not be weary. And then you start doing body management. You start thinking through the process. And then suddenly, before you know it, mile four, it's like you're floating. And you're not tired anymore. And you're like, what happened? It's the same way with ministry. You are going to hit walls in ministry, and if you are not determined to push through those walls from the beginning, then you're going to struggle. But if you are determined, and you're de determined to finish the task, then with the Lord's help, you can push through it. But don't give up. Continue to push through. And then in Ephesians, it continues, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. I want you to notice there is a priority. As believers, we are first and foremost to look out for our families. The Bible tells us to take care of our family's needs. So when it comes to charity, when it comes to help, our family should be top priority. And of course, when we talk about charity, when, it talk, when we talk about help, we mean true needs, not just wants, not just conveniences, but true needs. I can't eat food this week. Okay, I'm going to come and help you. So family, and then next, it talks about the family of faith, as it specifically says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We look out for our family, our close family. We look out for our church family. We also look out for extended church families. Those are spread throughout the globe because we want to support the work of ministry, the work of the gospel. Because if we're helping believers, we're also helping unbelievers. Because as a church, 
as a local church, our goal is to help people come to Christ. And in part of doing that is we get out into the world and we help those who are in need and we introduce them to Christ through filling that need, through acts of grace. And so there is a priority, and that's important because Paul ultimately is talking about supplying the needs of the saints. He's not talking about evangelistic work. He's talking specifically about saints. And then he says, give what you have. So Paul was not asking them to take out a loan or give beyond their means, but to consider giving whatever extra they might have for the relief of others. Now, Scripture condemns going into debt for any reason, including for the cause of charity. And also, when we make a commitment while our heart is in it, we are in debt to keep that commitment, even if the desire goes away. As, as you know, the Scripture says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have you ever had that situation where you're just so like swept up by one of those commercials, you know, just, just showing, showing the people in poverty or, or even some people showing the pets, you know, we, the pets need somebody to adopt them. And I always thought it was funny because people tend to give more for the pets than they do for the people, which is really bizarre. And then uh, as I get older, and as my heart grows harder towards the world because I've been through many experiences, I start to see those pets in a different light. I'm like, oh, those pets are so good. They're just little angels. They're nothing but pleasant. They greet you at the door. They, they never, they hardly complain. Yeah, let's save the pets. But God is calling for us to, to give what we have to meet the needs of the people, to help people who are in need. And sometimes we'll, we'll give to these things in the moment, and then months later we start to regret it, especially if it's like a reoccurring giving. But if you set your heart and your mind to it, even in the moment, God calls for you to finish the task or finish the commitment you set out to do. He wants our commitments to be aligned with our desires so that everyone can receive the optimal outcome. And this is why Paul writes in the next chapter, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So give from what you have and co commit to give what you are happy to give, what, what you desire to give. Not what this person over here says that you need to give. No, you give what is in your heart to give. Because after all, God is after your heart. He doesn't want you under compulsion to be giving. He wants the motivation to come from within, from within you. And then he talks about this idea of fairness. And as mentioned earlier, acts of grace do reciprocate. So if everyone in the local church was committed to giving what they have to those who have not, nobody would go without. That's at least the idea. It's a good idea. And if every church gave relief to the saints in trouble, no church would struggle through hardships alone or without. And one of the principles of church fellowship is that we develop these kind of reciprocal relationships where you're looking out for me and I'm looking out for you. We're taking care of each other, and it's not one-sided. 
It's not you complete, just always asking for things or always in need, but rather you yourself are stepping out and you are offering solutions for needs as well. We are helping each other. There should never be a case where as believers we feel like people are taking advantage of us. But rather we should, it should almost be like don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We're just helping each other naturally. And we never feel like things are out of place, like somebody is just taking advantage of other people. But rather, we, we see that person also giving and helping and receiving and giving and helping and receiving. It should be mutual. It should be reciprocal. That's the idea. Consider the early church. The early church, according to Acts 2, 42 through 47, tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, <clears throat> attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the early church really had this kind of idea down where they were looking out for the needs of one another. They didn't consider their possessions more important than the next person's possessions. They just considered the need more important than, than anything. We want to help you because you're in need. We want everybody to have. So that was their heart. But it wasn't just for the sake of having. It wasn't just for the sake of fairness in, in terms of they need to have exactly what that person has. Or they need to have the, the same amount of goats as that person had. Let, let's not stop until everybody has the exact same number of goats. That was not the idea. The idea was the heart behind it, that we are going to give, we are going to help, we are going to be a community of believers who are advancing the gospel, and that was the point, is that we want to be a thriving community that has what we need to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and carry out the great commission of Christ. That was the ultimate point. They weren't just looking to build this nice community where everybody was kind to each other and everybody had the same. They were looking to build a community that was effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the needs of the church, the needs of the church were, what do we need for every family, every person to go share the gospel with their neighbors? That was the idea. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26 says, God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This idea of true community, where if somebody's downcast, you feel it. If somebody's rejoicing, you want to join them in the party. True community has true concern for one another. And as the church, we are called to be that true community. At the end of this section, Paul quotes from Exodus 16, 16 through 18, to demonstrate that 
Fairness between churches is a principle modeled after a divine pattern rooted in Scripture. So if you remember when God gave food to the Israelites in the wilderness, he did so equally and according to each person's need. If, if you had a big family with like a thousand kids like the Lenarts do, and, and you need more food, then God would supply that and it could be divided equally. If you were a loner, you were by yourself, you would receive your portion. So everybody received their portion equally. Here's what the scripture says. <clears throat> this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could. So again, in order for the church to thrive, believers need to be willing to help each other in times of need. Those who have much should be anxious to give to those experiencing seasons of extraordinary hardships. Now we all go through ordinary hardships. All of us do. But for times, especially when there's an extraordinary situation like a famine or like a war or things like that, as a church, we should be ready and willing to help people in these extraordinary situations. Otherwise, I think the Bible is clear that if you don't work, you don't eat. If you are capable to work, you should work so that you can provide for yourself. It's not an extraordinary situation for you to have to labor and to work for the things that you have. But our choices, our decisions have consequences. If you choose to live, live a lazy lifestyle, if you choose to play video games instead of going to work, then you're going to reap the consequences. And, and should other people feel the need to have to come in and help you when you're making horrible decisions? You know, as a church, there's often times where people have trouble paying for their power bill. They'll come in, I don't know them from Adam, and they'll say, I cannot pay my power bill, it's freezing cold, I have children, I need help. So our philosophy is that when people come and ask for help, we will help them the first time, pretty much no questions asked. We'll ask, we'll ask them, well, what, what led to this situation? What kind of things happened to where you're in this position where you cannot pay for the power bill? And hopefully they're honest with us, and they'll talk about, well, I just had a series of unfortunate events, and, you know, my husband left me, and, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And as they share the things that happened, we will offer them our best advice and counsel for how to get out of this situation so that it doesn't happen again. And then if they happen to show up a second time, which oftentimes they don't, but if they do show up a second time and say, I, I can't pay my bill again, then we would ask them, did you do X, Y, and Z, which, which we advise you to do? Well, I, I didn't really feel like doing that one, and I, I, I can't really do that one, and no I, no, I didn't really do it, but I need help. Usually that's a sign that somebody has chosen to live irresponsibly. And we're led by the Lord, ultimately, but oftentimes in those situations, we would help them find a different solution we would confront their situation and where the problem is really at. 
which is the fact that they don't want to do the work necessary to help their own situation. They're just going to rely on other people, make other people their permanent source of income and help, rather than actually putting themselves in a position where they're not only helping themselves, but where they can help others. And ultimately, that that should be the goal of every believer, is that we are in a position ourselves where we can help other people who are truly in need. And if you're in a position where, where all you're doing is you're expecting the help of other people and you have nothing else, nothing that you can give, then you're not in the position the Lord wants you to be in. So as a matter of fairness, if the church is being the church, we are all striving to be in a position where we can help people when those times come. So as we look at this chapter, <clears throat> as we look at this verse, um, I think it's easy for some people to see this section and to believe that Paul is somehow advocating for socialism. Now, normally we don't get into uh, political topics unless the Scripture demands it or the Holy Spirit calls on us to talk about these things. And uh, about five years ago, I remember people started trying to make the case that Jesus is a socialist and trying to make the case that the Bible teaches that the church should advocate for socialism. And that those claims were quickly refuted, and it kind of went away for a while, this whole idea. And then just recently, probably in the last few months, I've seen these arguments popping up again. Jesus was a socialist. Christians should advocate for socialism. And so I want to take the opportunity because this movement is happening at the moment, and it's a rather aggressive movement, might I add, that I think it's important to equip the church to be able to answer these questions. Is Jesus a socialist? Did he advocate for socialist policy? Should the church promote socialist policy or ideas or theory in the world? Well, let's take a look. First of all, socialism, the word itself, if you look at the etymology, you're not going to find the word socialism in the Bible anywhere. And I can personally verify that the word socialism is not in the Bible. It did not originate from Scripture, and it's not a word you will find anywhere. Uh, The word actually originated and developed in France circa 1835 as socialisme and was popularized by French philosopher and publisher Pierre Leroux. I think I said that right. In 1837. So the word itself was developed in the 19th century. But what is socialism? So socialism is ultimately a secular term that has been used to describe the national socioeconomic theories aimed to create an equitable utopia um, by preventing individual ownership through enforcing the redistribution of property, wealth, and resources. So to put it plainly, socialism attempts to enforce equal outcomes for everyone. So for example... Equality ensures that everyone has the same test. 
Socialism wants to ensure that everyone has the same test score. So that's kind of the idea. And I want you to notice that in that definition, enforce is a very key word. And you're going to find that that's the big contrast between Christian charity and socialism. So next, socialism has a secular history. So although the words... The word socialism didn't exist until the 19th century. The concept, the, uh, the theory existed since at least the 4th century. The Greek philosopher Plato depicted a socialist utopian society in his work, The Republic. In the 16th century, English humanist and statesman Thomas More imagined a utopian society where money and possessions have been abolished and people live and work communally. When the Industrial Revolution made individual factory owners and their families very wealthy, uh, many of the workers of those factories did not feel that they were compensated well or received a fair wage. In fact, many of them lived very poor lives while the factory owners lived very rich lives. And as a result, this disparity, uh, of this disparity in 1848, Karl Marx a German philosopher and advocate of the theory of socialism, wrote the Communist Manifesto, which laid out a serious plan for how to implement socialism into a society. So, in other words, socialism is the theory. Communism is the theory in practice. So this manifesto of Karl Marx went on to inspire militant revolutions such as Adolf Hitler's National Socialist German... German Workers' Party, also known as the Nazi Party, Vladimir Lenin's Soviet Union, and Mao's People's Republic of China. Any of you students of history? How did those movements turn out? Really well. They're things that we should probably model the church after, right? No. Obviously, they turned out well. All you have to, all you have to do is say Hitler... And you kind of know all the things that we're talking about. So any student of history will know that all these systems became epic failures and created some of the most notorious dictators in modern history and egregious acts of tyranny and genocide the world has ever known. So not a good start for socialism. A very highly secular system of economics and policy that once implemented or once made into a communist policy ultimately leads to wreck and ruin and tyranny and ultimately war. What about today? Certainly people have learned the lessons of yesteryear and have not repeated the same mistakes of Hitler, of Vladimir, of Mao, right? We're done. We're, socialism is dead, right? No, it's, it's still alive and well. <clears throat> As uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. And that is ultimately the problem, is that it bankrupts societies. In, instead of making everybody equally good and happy, it makes everybody equally poor, except making all the rules on top. That's traditionally the result of 
socialism. It seems great at first because usually it's sold as this idea, this philanthropy idea of we just want to help people who are in disparate situations, people who have less than other people. We want to we give so that they can have, and we want everybody to have equally equal outcomes. That's how it starts, and it sounds great. Because as we think about it, we see somebody who's poor. Yes, I'd love for them to have the things that I have. I'd love for there not to be these people in, in severe poverty. I'd love for that. And socialism... It forces people to give money against their will to essentially create equal outcomes, which then discourages people from working any harder than they, than they have to, which means it ruins innovation, it ruins uh, any kind of um, extra or hard work, and so therefore you have just a, a standard of mediocrity in a country. Or in a place. Nothing grows, nothing gets better, and eventually it collapses. <clears throat> You're probably aware, if you pay attention to anything, that the World Economic Forum Conference is happening right now in Davos, Switzerland. The, the World Economic Forum is made up of economists, bank owners, wealthy financial political donors, and world leaders who, through this forum, are attempting to globally implement what they call the Great Reset, a.k.a. global socialism. The Great Reset is a movement among a coalition of world leaders to essentially implement socialism on a global scale. And one of the popular quotes from the World Economic Forum from the leader Klaus Schwab is, you will own nothing and you will love it. And I find it interesting that he speaks kind of like Hitler. He has a, he's German. He has a German accent. You will eat bugs and you will love it. And you will go live in small concentration camps and you will love it. But at least you will all be equal. This is kind of the idea. And it's based off of many of these socialist principles. And when you look at the political landscape today, multiple political elites on both sides of the aisle in the United States are members of the World Economic Forum. It's important, church, that we pay attention to what's happening. When you look at groups like BLM or Black Lives Matter, the idea of reparations is ultimately rooted in socialism, this idea of equal outcome. Uh, Antifa claim to be anti-fascist but are ultimately anarchists who are used by powerful socialists to disrupt the system and pave the way for a socialist future. You've heard of woke ideology, an institutional policy which uh, enforces equality and diversity. This comes primarily from a socialist philosophy. The secular Economic philosophy of socialism is very much alive and well today. In fact, it's gaining some ground. It's becoming popular. And as I mentioned before, the whole reason I'm bringing this up is to demonstrate that socialism is a secular idea. It is rooted in secularism. It is not taught from the Bible, at least the way that, sec that socialism is presented today. With that said, I do want to say that some who hold socialist views are indeed 
sincere in their desire to help people. I have met such people. They genuinely care about injustices that they see and poverty in the world, and they genuinely believe that by implementing socialism, they can help resolve some of these issues. This is the heart of many of the people who claim to be supporters of socialism. But in general, and in most cases, socialist policy does not seek to honor God or promote the Great Commission of Christ because it is a secular theory. Nowhere in socialist documents does it say that our end goal, our chief goal, is to give God honor and glory to seek and save the lost. None of it honors God. None of it gives God credence or honor or glory, but rather it is the worship of government, the worship of the government's ability to solve the world's problems. And as we've seen it played out, government in the absence of God always fails. And so socialism, at least as it has been demonstrated, is a failed system. But then you might say, well, does that mean that capitalism is God's work? Capitalism has many problems also. We're just not talking about that today. Socialism has created some of the most greedy, oppressive people on the face of the earth. But capitalism has also lifted people out of poverty more than any other economic system on earth. But the point is that Jesus was neither a socialist or a capitalist. Jesus' system is far greater than any of these. Because as Christians, we serve as members of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has a greater priority than anything. And so before we leave today, I just want to give a clear contrast based off of the scripture that we looked at today, considering 2 Corinthians 8, 10 through 15, a brief explanation of so, uh, to look at the contrast between socialism and the acts of grace as a church. First of all, Socialism demands coercion versus acts of grace provide choice. So in order for socialism to work, it must be forced at gunpoint. In other words, you must give us all your monies so that we can equally distribute to the people in need. And if you don't give it to us, we will shoot you. Okay, so it's forced at gunpoint. Did you hear any of that language when Paul was talking to the church at Corinth? Give money for the work of the saints or I'm going to kill you. No, he did not use that language, but rather it was encouraging. It was encouraging them, inspiring them to participate in the work of the Lord. Not by force, not by coercion, but by choice. So Christian charity should always be about choice. We should always have the choice whether we are giving of what we have or not. And every true believer, if you truly have the heart of God, will eventually get to that point in your walk with the Lord where you do overflow with the desire to give of what you have. Your, your possessions will suddenly become meaningless and your true desire is to share what the Lord has given you with other people. That becomes your riches the riches of the glory of God and of the gospel. And, and you cannot help but to give. 
But some people are in a place in their life or a season in their life where it's just not the desire of their heart. Or maybe they lose steam and they're, they're getting tired of it. They're getting worn down from constantly giving. Maybe they've been taken advantage of many times and their heart grows hard. But again, we push through those walls. We rely on God to help us. But that's the primary difference between socialism and Christian giving is coercion and choice. Also, socialism is about nation building. Acts of grace are about building the kingdom of God. So in this specific context, it's about churches helping churches. Why would churches just help other churches? Because our biggest priority is to spread the gospel, to build the kingdom of God. That is our goal, to share the gospel with the world. What is a nation's desire with socialism? Power, money, fame, fortune, As Christians, we are not in the business of nation building. We are in the business of kingdom building. We are building the kingdom of God. And that's done through the work of the Lord. Third, Christian charity or acts of grace come from the people. And in socialism, the redistribution of wealth comes from the government. The government decides how it goes. I I really, I hate the idea of taxing for the sake of giving charity to other people because that robs us from our ability to interact and be be participants in charitable giving. And, And when it's taken, when the government takes that away or our ability away to do that, ultimately we are, we are being hijacked of that reciprocating grace because it's awesome to be a part of that giving, to actually be the person who's doing that. You're with that person. You're personally invested as you're giving or you're personally invested in helping this church or this area or this place in need and there's, you get something back from it. But when the government takes that away, like through socialism and they're the ones who decide where it's dispersed to, totally removes that personal connection. And instead, we just become a bunch of X's and O's. We are living people, and God wants us to participate in giving. The fourth and final contrast here, and there's more, but these are the big ones, is that acts of grace are oftentimes seasonal. In other words, you will not be expected to be somebody's permanent source of income but rather it's situational. If somebody is in a situation where they're in a time of great need, you help them, and hopefully you help them so they get a sustained place where they don't need that anymore, and it's done. I mean, Paul talks about completing the task that they set out to do a year ago. So they have been contributing, they've been dispatching and helping for a year, but the work was not done. But this indicates that at some point, the work is done. The problem with socialism is it's continuous. As long as that nation is a nation, then you are expected to give of what you have forever. There's no end to it. It's not situational. It's perpetual. 
And so here are some of the ways, based off of this verse, that no, the Bible does not tell the church that we are to be advocates of socialism. In fact, I'd say quite the contrary, that we are to be those who are advocates of Christ's kingdom, of his glory, of his grace. I'm going to leave you with Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The church is not called to be advocates of socialism. And next week, I want to take a little bit of time away from Corinthians to address the question, was Jesus a socialist? I think this topic is important. And I really want us as the church to be informed and aware of what the Bible says versus what the world says about the way we are to give and the way we are to love and the way we are to share, the way we are to implement fairness in this world because there is a separation of church and state as far as the way that we are to operate as a church. And I think it, it has to begin with Christ. And so I want to take at least one more week in this topic and answer the question, was Jesus a socialist? And spoiler alert, no, he was not. But I want to demonstrate that with you and show you all the places in the Bible, in the life and the ministry of Christ, where that runs counter to that premise. So let's pray, church. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which brings us clarity and truth. Thank you, God, that, that your will is above all, that your kingdom is above all, that you have given us a greater kingdom than all the world. The kingdoms of the world have risen and fallen throughout human history, but your kingdom will last forever. So, Father, help us to put things into priority. Help us to have a true desire and heart to help people. But, God, ultimately give us a heart and desire for people to be saved from their sin that they might repent, confess and believe in you and have eternal life, the greatest gift of them all. Father, make that our priority. Give us that desire. And Lord, we just long to serve you because you have served us so well. Your grace is so good. Help us to give grace to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.